We had a very quintessential girls night last weekend, Caitlin. We really did when one of our longtime girlfriends was in from out of town. We went to dinner. We talked relationships, jobs. We even did some clothes swapping and got ready for a concert together. We were basically three-fourths the cast of Sex in the City. It's true. There was this thing our friend said when she was putting on makeup that's really stuck with me. She said, it's time to put my gender on. <laughs> that's exactly the kind of thing that our friend would say. It is. <laughs> Why do you think you're still thinking about it? I think there was something about like this implied choice of choosing to embody my gender. And I, I guess it kind of made me think, what do I like about being a woman that I'd want to put that on? Do you like being a woman? Like, what do you like about being a woman? Well, I like makeup, fun clothes for sure. And good girlfriends that we've had for a long time. And sassy women rock stars, like the one we saw later that night at the church's concert. Who scream into the microphone. <laughs> we won't recreate that here. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women dressing up and living large in the big city. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. So this is an interesting question. The things that strike me about being a woman tend to be negative. <laughs> like when I think about being mm-hmm. a woman, it's like, exactly. oh, I have to deal with a period every month and I have to, I don't get paid as much as <laughs> I men. I have to deal with sexist attitudes or, you know, being catcalled on the street or whatever. But I like this question of what I like about being a woman. And one of the things that comes to mind is when, an old babysitter of mine, I was like 12 or 13, and she was a teenager, would bring over copies of 17 and 16 magazine, which were like ultimate teen girl mm-hmm. Bibles, mm-hmm. basically. And around that time, I I, w- I would read the same three issues like over and over again. I would like cut out articles and put them on like tape them up because like how to do your nails yes. how to do your makeup in this way how to do your hair and then I would like copy them it was basically like a guide on how to be a teenage girl slash woman and there was something mm-hmm. fun about it right like it was fun to <laughs> shave my legs for the first time <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that and how many times I cut myself yeah or like or like when mom allowed me to wear heels for right, the first or time. Or like buying eye, eye shadow for the first You know, that there was something fun about that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, looking back, you know, those magazines that we both grew up with were, they were teaching us about femininity, about how to be women. And it was a very particular vision of femininity. It was very mm-hmm. you know, white, middle class, very like consuming your way into womanhood, yeah. you know. 
this is what you can buy to wear or put on your face to make yourself a more appealing woman. Yeah. And even though it was fun, there was also a pressure implied too. Like if you want boys Mm -hmm. to like you, if you want to be accepted by the people in your class, if you want to stand out, like you should be these things to be attractive and to be liked by other people and to be accepted. Yeah. And of course we were growing up in the heroin chic era when uh, (laughs) like very very thin bone thin so thin calvin klein models kate moss obviously Mm -hmm. uh you know very specific ideals around body image and weight that i have to imagine have shaped an entire generation of women (laughs) Mm -hmm. i saw someone tweet and i would give this credit if i remembered who it was but they tweeted something about like for women of a certain age, they will remember the 579 store that didn't carry any sizes above a size nine. And it's the reason so many of us are still so angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. it's so true. I mean, there's still like, you know, even to this day, you know, I still have an idea of what my body should look like that is very unrealistic. Do you think those magazines were also like telling us how to be in terms of personality? You know, I, th- I I think there was this ideal of like what it means to be, you have to be fun, you have to be charming, you have to be physically fit and a little bit into sports, but not too into sports. Not aggressive. Yeah, exactly. You had to know some things about what boys like, like it was good if you knew a little bit about cars or you <laughs> knew a little bit about fishing, but not too much, not in an intimidating way. And actually, when I think about it, a lot of it was like that. It was... Mm. You've got to be just enough of something, but not too much of anything. You have to know enough to impress the boys in your class, but not enough that you would intimidate them or be their equal. (laughs) Right. And it was, you know, like that, like the manic pixie. Mm -hmm. You should be a little crazy, but not too crazy. A little whimsical, but not so much. It was a very limited boxed in idea of what it meant to be a woman and I guess as I'm saying this a lot of this was very much through the male gaze Mm -hmm. like what you should be as a woman defined by what men want. Right I mean obviously so much of those magazines and like movies and music at the time was about romance and dating and ultimately preparing women to get boyfriends slash husbands like that was the goal to prepare yourself for the marketplace you were competing with other women to get male attention right right I'd like to think things have changed but when I scroll through Instagram and the ads that come up I there's still an expectation of beauty agelessness all of that uh even more around maybe what you own or what your house looks like or what your job is like. When we were 15, the ads were for low-rise bootcut jeans. Which apparently are making a comeback. Boo. You have to basically have a 13-year-old body to wear those. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to look good enough. Yes. But now, you know, what's happened isn't that we've, we're less marketed to. It's just the object of marketing has changed to you know, Botox and very expensive night cream, like gummies that are supposed to make your collagen. I haven't gotten that one. Oh, just wait. If you scroll long enough on Instagram, (laughs) obviously so much of this is about like what you own and how you present to the rest of the world, but very specifically for women about 
how you look. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't really go away, you know? And so we're not going to be able to turn off the advertising and marketing. So it takes a conscious choice on our part to say, I'm not going to buy into the vision of femininity that's being sold to me or being pitched to me. I'm going to find my worth and value as a woman, as a human person, (laughs) by something more internal. You know, the thing that I remember about this past weekend is not going to be like the clothing and the makeup, even though there's nothing wrong with that. It's like our friendship with our longtime friend and the conversations that we can still have and thinking, I want to find my worth in relationship to people I love and not to pursuing a man or having perfect skin. How's that going for you? (laughs) Do you think that you are letting go of some of these societal expectations and ideals? How are you finding self-worth outside of those marketing ploys? I would like to say it's going swimmingly that I have achieved like a Zen-like peace with all Mm -hmm. elements Mm -hmm. of my body and my face and my jowls. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've talked about our jowls before. We have (laughs) talked about our jowls, which was something we never talked about as teenagers. (laughs) Yes. I I think my big concern at age 13 was what if my boobs never get bigger than this? (laughs) That is not my concern anymore. No, no, (laughs) no. I mean, yeah, now it's, now I have different questions about my boobs. Um, (laughs) there are certain things I feel like I've done a decent job of letting go of, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not trying to look like a Calvin Klein model from the 1990s anymore, but I still, you know, still worry about what my body looks like and how much I weigh and worry about the fine lines and the wrinkles. And, you know, there's a different idea of what like a woman our age should present to the world Mm -hmm. that I still fight, you know? And wrestle with wanting to be or feel envious about other women who are more in that way. And and we referenced sex in the city earlier. I feel like that's that was a big like, this is what you want to be. And you're mm-hmm. like midlife in New York City. You're still mm-hmm. cool and independent and super fashionable. And you have a great job and you're having fun all the time. And you're out and you're doing cool things. And your apartment is beautiful. Like there's mm-hmm. just a, the, the, maybe the marker is moved. But there is certainly like an image and a type of woman, an ideal that I feel like is being held in front of me that I should want to be. Mm -hmm. I do feel like pop culture has helped us a little bit just in terms of even just looking at advertising, right? Or bigger conversations about body image. I think representation has gotten better. Like women on TV look much more normal and diverse now in all kinds of ways. I don't think they could make Sex in the City today, which I don't think that they could. But, but they, they are. are. They're just bringing back <laughs> the remake. <laughs> so never mind. There's still a market for like thin, rich white women in New York. Mm-hmm. I will say that I feel less anxious about pursuing an external ideal when I feel more deeply connected to other people. Like, I just think that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. relationships where your worth is reflected back, not as like, we like you because you're thin and beautiful, but we like you because you're you, you know, because of Mm -hmm. your personality, because of your care for other people, because of your understanding of me. That seems like a really good antidote to buffering against some of the more insidious attitudes about 
single women in our 30s in New York. Mm -hmm. If you were to show your 13-year-old self your life now, would she be excited? I actually think about this quite a bit because I I remember thinking at age 13, like, what will I be like when I'm 17? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Because 17 (laughs) just seemed like so, like, I'm going to be a totally different person. Yes. And then, you know, what will I be like when I'm 27? Like, I couldn't even imagine, but Mm -hmm. it just felt like I'm going to be this brand new other person. My 13-year-old self would think it was pretty great that I lived in New York lived by myself, had a great job. Mm -hmm. And then I think she would maybe be disappointed that I didn't snag a man for good. Like what was all that dating relationship for? (laughs) And like how to flirt without being weird. I didn't pass the test, I guess. Um, Yeah, I think it would be a mix. I think there would be things that I would think were so cool. And then things I'm like, ah, I didn't expect that. I think my 13 year old self had really high expectations and uh, I don't know if I like her anymore in some ways, but right. <laughs> she would love that I lived in New York. She'd love that I live alone. She'd love that I'm an editor. That's what all the cool women in movies about New York always are yeah. for some reason. Yes. Um, the marriage thing, she'd be like, what in the world? Um, she wouldn't love the jowls. She wouldn't even know about jowls. No, she'd be like, she'd be like, what happened to your chin line? What's going on there? <laughs> she probably thinks that I could dress cooler. She doesn't know how much things cost. <laughs> she thinks you should just keep shopping at 579. Like, things are really <laughs> cheap at Forever 21. So, like, what's the problem? We've talked a lot about these secular influences on who we think we're supposed to be as women, but haven't really brought up Christian ones in this episode. We haven't many past episodes, Mm -hmm. but it strikes me sometimes how much those actually overlap in the ways that an ideal of femininity and beauty is not so different in secular culture as in Christian culture. You know, and even in the way like some women in the Bible are portrayed, um, they maybe are like, they don't care as much about clothes, but they're still beautiful and they're still, the men still love them. And it's their godliness that made them so beautiful for men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think we often think they're so different, but I think in a lot of ways they overlap. You don't have to scroll very far through Christian wife Instagram to see that the beauty ideals are not so different. Oh, Yeah. That's actually a really good point. I was trying to think, I mean, I don't remember hearing a lot of teaching growing up about beauty ideals, like at least not from Christian sources, but mm-hmm. certainly white Christian women's Instagram <laughs> doesn't really do much to challenge prevailing no. secular norms around what's beautiful. It's just overlaid with this veneer of holiness and Mm -hmm. purity, which is Mm -hmm. just really just adding another layer of expectation on for women, like the expectation to be very attractive, but not so attractive that you're a stumbling block, you know, to like, not immodest in your, in your attractiveness. Right. Or to, to be attractive in a way that will keep your husband engaged 
in the relationship because mm-hmm. if you don't keep up appearances, he might lose interest and he might have an affair. And that'll that'll be on you, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think about you know, neither of us is experiencing this currently, but expectations for women raising children. Yes. The ideal is to not work outside the home. If you have to work outside the home, it should be part-time when your children are young. It should not be central to your Mm -hmm. identity. Work is just Mm -hmm. a pragmatic thing to do on the side. It's your, your central identity is to be a wife and mother. If you derive too much satisfaction in your work it could become an idol (laughs) yeah and your children look and behave a certain way they're postcard perfect um maybe even you're homeschooling them so that they have good values I often think about just how much expectation is put on moms in general particularly on Christian moms within the church and my understanding is that it's actually gotten worse in the internet era because yeah, there's no one like- expert. It's not like, oh, everybody's just deferring to James Dobson. It's like for any ideological belief you could have about like how to raise children right, you can find that on the internet or with certain mm-hmm. bloggers or Instagram influencers saying like, this is how it should be done or this is how we do it and you should look to us as models. Or look at how cool my kid's birthday party was. Yes. And you can watch hours and hours of YouTube videos and Instagram stories and buy this children's book or buy this Mm -hmm. like play set link, link in my bio, you know? Yeah. It really does seem like femininity in a capitalist era is really Mm -hmm. about buying the right things to feel secure, to feel like you're doing it right. Like whether you're a wife and mom or just an adult woman trying to get by, it's like very centered on having the right things that will make you feel like you're doing it right. Society expects a lot from women, but isn't offering much in return. So is this just a, is this a gut Roxy feeling or do you have some numbers to back up this bold assertion? You know, I've got numbers, Caitlin. I I feel another by the numbers game coming. Women's inequality by the numbers. All right. What you got, Roxy? Give it to me straight. All right, check it out. Less than half of working-age women are actually out there working. How much has that changed in the last 25 years? Barely, because on an average day, the women of the world do way more housework and caregiving than men do. Obviously. Guess how many hours women are still doing domestic work? 4.2 hours per day, which is like four episodes of The Crown. Whereas men, 1.7 hours, like three episodes of Home Improvement. And how many women in the world have management positions? 18%, which is about the same as what it was in 1995, almost 30 years ago. Barf. And how many of those are in the C-suite? Less than one-fifth. You might say double barf. And that top CEO position, the President of the United States? Yeah, still haven't had one of those. On that note, in the political realm, what percentage of Congress are women? Just about a quarter. Nowhere near representative of half the population. 
And to really bring things down, let's talk about the pay gap. Because yeah, that still exists. Can you guess what the pay gap is here in nasty old 2021? 85%. As in, women only make 85% of what men make. And if women are poor, they're actually poorer. More women than men live in poverty, and retired women are twice as likely as retired men to live in poverty. And all of those disparities are more significant for women of color. Well, if the point of these numbers was to make me depressed, success. I know, I know. It feels like women's rights and equality have come so far, and then, ugh, they really haven't. Yeah, these inequalities and unfair expectations take a toll on us personally, not just societally. This is why we're excited for you to hear from our guest today, who's really explored what it looks like for women to live in these spaces between societal expectations and real life. Not only live, but actually thrive and even change the world in the process. Kaya Oaks is a journalist and author of several books. She teaches writing at UC Berkeley and regularly speaks on topics related to religion, writing, and feminism. She's a contributing writer for America Magazine. Kaya draws on the wisdom of women from the Bible and female mystics to explore how women can find opportunities in life's transitions. Our conversation with Kaya is coming right up after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. If you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, one of the best ways to support us is by donating to Religion News Service. RNS is a nonprofit newsroom and relies on reader support. Right now, you can donate through Newsmatch at religionnews.com. And if you're enjoying our podcast, do be sure to throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way to help us get the word out about the show. Or shoot us an email at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We're delighted to be joined today by Kaya Oaks, author of The Defiant Middle and champion of women of all ages, shapes, and sizes. Even some dead women, too. Welcome to the show, Kaya. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. You have a new book out, and in your book, you focus a lot on what you call life's middle spaces. You use the word liminal a lot and in-betweens. So when you talk about these as opportunities for women, in particular, for transformation, why do you think the middle spaces? What makes them so ripe for women in particular? I think it has a lot to do with the whole premise of the idea that women are, and men too, let's be fair, are -hmm. expected to fulfill certain gender expectations. And as a result of that, oftentimes uh, women feel like they're trapped in between expectations and reality. The book began with this essay that I wrote for On Being, and that had specifically to do with uh, medieval women. So women in the medieval era and how they were living into these, this time that was very dangerous for women and which women didn't live very long most of the time. Mm-hmm. But out of that came the Renaissance and came a lot of really remarkable visionary women in the Christian tradition that I am specifically kind of mining in this book. So liminal spaces, and then that opens up to things like 
younger women and how, you know, we expect girls to be mature and, you know, to also be innocent, how we expect older women to stay, you know, sexy, sexy at 50 up as all the ads I get on social media remind me I should be. <laughs> um, and, uh, and also, but then also expectations in general, how do we live in between expectations and reality? Mm. You just mentioned, yes, of course, men face gendered expectations as well. But yeah. it sounds like the focus of your book really is on unique double expectations that women face. So to put it kind of crudely, like why why is this particularly hard for women? And then why are the middle spaces particularly ripe for women? I think part of the problem is that there's just more expectations of women. The three of us have experienced life in denominations where Christian denominations where women can't preach or be ordained. Mm -hmm. And yet those denominations put more expectations on women while silencing them. And so it's a weird kind of like, don't, don't talk, you know, thanks, Paul, you know, like don't talk in church, but also like be a leader in your family and like, you know, have lots of kids and bring them up right and so on and so forth. The expectations are so different of of men in terms of how they're expected to be, you know, husband, father, servant, leader, right? Like that kind of cliched masculinity is just so different because it's it's just so it's so much about power and uh, dominance. And while women are expected to be powerful uh, in their families, it's it's more this expectation of being a good mom, you know, a good wife, a good partner. You know, it's Advent and Advent itself is, you know, often described as a liminal space between the now and not yet. So when you think about Advent, I wonder if you have any particular challenges or inspiration for people approaching Advent right now, doing devotionals, whatever, when they think about the opportunities in these middle spaces. Yeah, I was just listening to a great um, sermon that my spiritual director gave. Uh, He also lives in liminal spaces because he's a a gay Catholic who preaches at a Presbyterian church. (laughs) So, you know, why not, right? Um, But he was talking about dominion doesn't mean dominionism. And I think that's a, a liminal space of Advent, too, is this waiting for this, you know, this king and kingdom. But also, how do we understand that's not necessarily a patriarchal, top-down kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. Also, uh, we have, you know, the Magnificat, which is this hugely important prayer of Mary, which gets kind of sidelined or buried in some liturgies. And how that is really, again, the kingdom in reverse and the idea that the people in the bottom are on the top. And so I think that Advent is sort of an opportunity for people to kind of pray into or meditate into the idea of um, being the opposite of what you're expected to be. You know, Mary's prayer about what does God want for the world is is to is the opposite of patriarchy in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um, because patriarchy is about uh, unearned privilege being used to control other people, and that's not what God wants for the people. 
Backing up a little bit, you mentioned the Magnificat is sometimes overlooked in certain teachings and liturgies. I don't think I really spent any time with it until I was well into my 20s and I like grew up in the church. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So for listeners who have heard about the Magnificat, but maybe don't know exactly what it is, what what is it? Where does it take place in the story of scripture? And then what is it meant to you specifically as a Catholic woman who was given, assumedly, certain teachings about Mary <laughs> that don't really accord with what we see about her in the Magnificat. Right. So the Magnificat is Mary's prayer. It's in response to the news that she's going to be the Theotokos, right, the, the bearer of God. I always like that idea that Mary brings God into the world. And so it's sort of, again, it's a reversal of how we think of God bringing Mary into the world. But in fact, Mary brings God into the world. And it's a prayer where she talks about what God wants for the world. And, and that is basically to pick the least among these, you know, to lift up the lowly and cast down the proud. A whole bunch of good stuff. Um, but it, it's... It's really interesting because it's one of the few times that she speaks in scripture hmm. and the fact that she's given this very powerful voice and she herself is the woman and living in the time that she lived in probably had no public voice. And so it's very powerful. And in monastic orders, so orders of Catholics who live in contemplative monasteries, the Magnificat is part of the prayer that they pray every day. And oh, so, wow. yeah, so it's really interesting to me that people who live in a contemplative community where they don't really interact with the outside world, this is part of their daily readings. For many of us, whether we grew up in Catholic traditions or in more evangelical Protestant traditions, as Caitlin said, like, we don't necessarily hear the Magnificat, or if we do, we don't hear that part of the Magnificat. We, you know, we hear blessed am I among many, right. like, and Mary's submission, her mothering, her nurturing, her softness, her innocence. Like when I think about your book and talking about women and expectations and stereotypes, that seems like Mary really got softened in a way. Absolutely. I mean, so many women in the Bible, right? We could probably come up with a really long list of women in the Old Testament. Really, with Mary, I think because we've reduced her to only being a vessel versus a mm. person, and she has a voice and she has a personality. And so being Catholic, I grew up with this kind of white plaster statue, Mary with blonde hair and blue eyes and you know, I was going to this Catholic school in the middle of Oakland, California, and most of my classmates were brown and black. And we had this very, you know, Barbie Mary, like, <laughs> that we, <laughs> we interacted with in the hallways of our school. And it was just so different than encountering her as an adult and reading Elizabeth Johnson's book on Mary, which is called Truly Our Sister, and it's just re-envisioning our relationship to her. And just thinking about the Virgin of Guadalupe and all of the images of Mary that kind of help us to reclaim her in ways that are a little bit less about, you know, she's a good mommy 
<laughs> yeah, it, what you're mm-hmm. describing is some kind of process whereby Mary has been whitewashed, not just in terms of kind of defanging the Magnificat and emphasizing the the glowy parts, but whitewashed literally being a person of Middle Eastern descent, being a teenager, being angry, all of that was stripped away, which was ironic in your social location growing up. <laughs> that, right. um, so many of your, your Catholic peers were not of European descent, and yet we somehow we got Barbie Mary. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's just kind of historically the problem with a lot of saints mm-hmm. and women in scripture, too, is they've been defanged, as you put it, and they've also been kind of reduced to just this pious simplicity of like, oh, this person represents innocence and this person i i was just uh looking this morning back at this chapter i wrote on mental health and and women and and the whole idea in the catholic tradition that the patron saint of mental illness is saint dymphna who was actually the victim of a, a pedophile and her father was mentally ill and sexually obsessed with her and he killed her because he he wanted to have sex with her and she refused and I'm like, why did you pick her? Like, she's like, there's nothing to this poor girl. You know, she had no agency in this. And there were so many other people who are so much more representative of what people really go through in that struggle. But again, she's she's innocent. She is pure. You know, she's protecting her purity. And that's the most important thing about her. And then we lose all that everything else in the story gets subsumed by that message. One of the points that you made that I thought was interesting, you talked about a righteous anger that women can have like toward systems or injustices that that might be valorized. Whereas a woman being angry on behalf of herself, it can seem selfish, but you also seem to push back against that and say, those are, those are interconnected issues. Mm. So talk a little bit more about that and, and, and trauma in that way. Yeah, I got some of this I got from Elizabeth Johnson, who is a Catholic sister who's also a retired theology professor from Fordham and sort of a towering figure in feminist theology, but somebody who's lived within systems of of patriarchy her whole life, right? I think it's in she who is in one of her books about this idea of righteous anger and how uh, we admire people like Greta Thunberg or Malala Yousafzai, both of whom I talk about in the book, because they are speaking on behalf of oppressed people, you know, or the planet in the case of Thunberg or someone like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who's very passionate about the issues she talks about. But at the same time, a lot of the time when women are angry about personal violations, like, again, I think back to sex abuse and sexual violence and sexual harassment and Me Too and how that sort of like peaked and then at some point became, well, it's just a bunch of piss off women it's sort of ironic that we both sort of like honor that righteous anger on behalf of the oppressed. But like the figure I talk about a lot in that particular chapter is Dorothy Day, who um, was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, founded the Catholic worker movement and was very much a, a big public figure on behalf of the poor in particular, 
but was also just a very angry person herself. And she was mm-hmm. very snippy and short-tempered. And from all accounts of people who worked with her, she was just in, in a foul mood a lot of the time. Now, mm-hmm. as a child, she survived the 1916 earthquake here in the Bay Area. So she had a traumatic incident. Then she had a child out of wedlock. At the time, they would call it that. She was an unmarried mother. And again, she was traumatized by the way people judged her and reacted to that. And so she had a right to be angry, you know, but people Mm -hmm. only liked her when she was angry about oppression, not when she was angry about how you were, you know, uh, talking to her or like treating her one on one. But that trauma and then particularly that what I uh, have learned is called epigenetic trauma. So like his like if somebody in your family uh, was burned at the stake in this in the witch trials you know you you have that trauma in your genes that your family went through in the past and particularly we're learning how this works with people whose families went through things like slavery but mm-hmm. also you know wars uh, rape sexual harassment all that kind of stuff right traumas passed down mm-hmm. genetically and we've we have evidence that trauma is generational not just individual and that you can inherit trauma yeah and particularly with women because in a lot of marriages there was abuse was kind of normative I wonder how much Mm -hmm. of that you know we're seeing today just kind of coming out in women's bodies and minds you know Caitlin and I are well all three of us are you know we don't have kids Caitlin and I are not married or, you know, approaching, rapidly approaching, maybe at middle age. I'm not sure where that starts you get anymore. To <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. But living these less stereotypical lives for women. And I think part of what excited me about your book and talking to you is that I think you found or you are saying there's opportunity for living a fulfilling good purposeful life outside of these boxes that have often been presented as the best choice for women. Yeah. I think it's really important to have conversations about this too, because I, I realize that oftentimes because women who don't have children or who aren't partnered are seen as a failure. And I find that really problematic because there's so many reasons somebody might not have a child or might not have a partner including maybe you just don't want one. Maybe that's not your vocation. It's really easy Mm -hmm. for churches to say, you know, women have a vocation to motherhood. But then there's lots of examples Mm -hmm. in the Bible of women who didn't have children. And in the Catholic Church, we have these amazing uh, sisters who take a vow of celibacy and don't get married and don't have children. Mm-hmm. And they do phenomenal work in social services um, and creative work. I really want to push back against that narrative of it's a failure. It took me a while to discover the breadth of the Christian tradition and the fact that celibacy and solitude have been very time honored vocational calls for women. I mean, I think of Julian of Norwich, who my understanding is she spent most of her vocation like in a tiny little cell having these 
you know, dramatic visions from God and writing about it. There's something radical even today about the notion of a woman who mm-hmm. doesn't just want to be alone, but is called to be alone and that finds a fruitfulness and something generative and life-giving in that space when the world may just see her as like, as you said, Kaya, a failure or only defined by what she lacks. I felt that more acutely in suburban contexts. I think one of the gifts of living in a city now is that there are just there are that many more single people. People stay single for longer. There are lots of different reasons why people are not partnered with kids. Mm -hmm. And there's just a there's a space for it to not be weird. (laughs) Like, um, and so I think your your work and your writing also makes a lot of space for women and also men to, to kind of resist absorbing messages that are damaging and also not really Christian. You're right. It isn't very Christian because our, our, you know, our religion is based on that person who a man who never got married as far as we know, or so they tell us and who never had children. And so why are we being pressured to, you know, to not, I mean, if we really want to be like Jesus, then we would run around with our friends all day and not worry about a <laughs> nuclear family, right? And so in some ways, the mm-hmm. queer community is teaching us a different way to be. And I think I, living in the Bay Area, you know, like there's lots of families that are different than what I grew up understanding a family to be. You'll see a lot more single people, but who are part of a family life, right? Whether that's through extended families or blended families or friend families or, you know, whatever. And so I think that's really important for us to pay attention to because, it is as much as we want to believe that it's our destiny to have children. It's not possible for some people. And then again, it's just not mm-hmm. a choice for some that they're ready to make until they're past that age when you can biologically do it. But that doesn't mean you can't nurture, mentor, take care of, grow a family in a different way. Thank you so much for your time, Kaya, for this great conversation. For those out there who want to, who do want to buy your book and read it and and talk about it, what is the name and where can they find it? Sure, it's called The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. And you can buy it wherever books are sold on the internet. And then I definitely encourage people to go to their local independent bookstore and ask them to order it. It usually comes just as fast as you'd get it from some online place. So yeah, that's where you can find it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Say by the City is a religion news service production. The executive producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Caitlin Beatty and Roxy Stone. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.